0: The Courage to Lead, episode 196.
1: You're listening to the IB4E Coaching Podcast.
0: Brought to you by IB4E Coaching, business coaching for executives, entrepreneurs, and small business professionals. Learn more at ib4e-coaching.com. Hey, Coach Harlan here. Welcome back to the podcast. Hope you guys are having a phenomenal week. I'm having a great week, and I'm excited to introduce you to my guest today. Please help me welcome Dan Norenberg. Dan Norenberg is an advisor, coach, and consultant to executive and strategic leadership teams, enabling them to improve their performance, strategy, and organizational results. He's the author of Executive Owner Shift, creating highly effective leadership teams from Springer Publications in Switzerland, uh, highlighting what must go right and what can go wrong in leadership teams that strive to play at their best. Dan's Pragmatic Executive Coaching video series, Nuremberg's uh, 90 Seconds, is viewed by thousands on LinkedIn and YouTube. Uh, Dan lives with his wife, Uta, in Munich. they two lovely children who are adventuring outside of the house now. After COVID, that's a good thing, isn't it? To finally be able to
1: get out and do stuff. That's that's true. And I was just mentioning, you know, I spent the last couple of days in Copenhagen working on a program, and it's just nice to be out and see people out. I think we've got a little bit of everybody moving out at the same time, so the airports are a little bit jammed, but that gives us an opportunity to practice a little patience and humility. And uh, so, yeah, it is it is nice to be traveling without masks again.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm looking forward. My wife and I are planning a trip to Iceland in November. Hope to see the Northern Lights. That's yeah. that's what we're going to do. So
1: Fantastic. Yeah, so. All right.
0: I want to come back um, and, and talk about how you got your start, uh, some of the things you're working on, talk about your book. Uh, but before we get started, I have 10 questions that I ask every one of my guests. And listeners know these are the questions made famous on the TV show Inside the Actor Studio, where the host James Lipton asks these questions of his Hollywood guests from TV, film, and stage. And I figure if they're good enough for the Hollywood elite, they're certainly good enough for my guests. So, Dan, if you're ready. Give, give, it, give it a whirl. <laughs> All right. Question
1: one, what is your favorite word? Family. What is your least favorite word? I don't even like to say it, but it's the H-A-T-E word. I'm with you. Uh, What turns you on? When someone says to me, you can't do that
0: like lighting a fire under you right it just
1: that's just you know coming to europe we'll, we'll probably get into that but when someone says you just can't do that that just raises me to new heights of enthusiasm and creativity excellent all right what turns you off complaining what sound or noise do you love i love the sound of church bells just about any time they come on there's something about the different melodies and where, depending upon where you are from the church, but I just really love hearing church bells. Yeah, love that. All right. Now,
0: without using the word H-A-T-E, what sound or noise do you dislike strongly?
1: <laughs> I, I I really, well, i say dislike or I feel a lot of discomfort when uh, when people are in pain, either emotional or physical pain, through an accident or separation or illness, or that's a, that's a tough one for me. I'm done that. All right. Question
0: seven. What is your favorite curse word?
1: Well, I'm going to have to take a pass here. I'm not saying I've never said one. However, I'm doing my best to keep pretty clean language. And I'm sure my children would probably say, Oh, Papa, you got one or two that you're, Still dropping from time to time, but I'm just going to say I don't have a favorite because I'm trying to clean that part up in my language.
0: Good deal. No, that's perfectly fine. All right. Question number
1: eight. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? A magician. Really, and, and it was something I, I wanted to do when I first came to Europe. I, can I go on that for a second? Sure. I came to Europe. You know, I didn't speak a word of German, didn't know anybody, didn't have any work papers. I was wandering around the town center and I saw a guy doing magic and I thought, and he was making money. They were dropping money and I was just traveling, which I eventually stayed. And I thought, wow, being a magician, could I could travel around Europe. I could do magic tricks make some money and then during the because it's usually in the in the evening that you do those magic things but then during the day you could visit schools and old folks homes and and bring some joy into their life so I actually signed up for a magic class when I first came to Germany the problem was it was all in German and I didn't speak any German so the only trick I remembered was how to pull a rabbit out of my out of my pants pocket so no I'm just joking um actually a magician that's what I would have liked to have been if, if it was another profession
0: that's awesome very cool all right
1: what profession would you not like to do? Well, with no disrespect to any of your listeners that might be in this profession. For me, it would be to to work for a moving company, to think that you move that piano up four flights of stairs and and everything else refrigerator, and you've got the job done the next day you've got another family to move. I just think that would be a really that'd be a really tough one for me. Absolutely. I always thought it would
0: be great to have a
1: a moving company slash
0: travel agency. So you could sign up for the move and then go on a cruise. And when you got back from the cruise, you're in a new place. That's a great, uh, that's great marketing bundling right there. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. All right. Final question. If heaven exists, what would you like
1: to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Well, if and when I ever pull into the front door, I think he'd, I'd, I'd appreciate if he'd say something like, uh, glad you really enjoyed and appreciated the life that I gave you. I think that's that would be a. That's what I strive to do. It's just to Absolutely. enjoy and appreciate the life I've been given. Absolutely. Good job. All right, Dan. We're going to
0: come back. Talk about uh, how you got your start, who you work with, how you help them. We're going to talk a little bit about your book, a fascinating uh, book. And uh, at some point, we'll transition into courage and leadership. Okay. All right. Yeah. all right. So, listeners, we'll talk about all of that and probably a lot more right after this. So, stick with us. Well, you don't have to imagine any more. You can have that and more when you join my Business Success Mastermind Group. Join my Business Success Mastermind Group today. Learn more at ib4e-coaching.com forward slash mastermind. And I'm back with my guest, Dan Norberg. Dan, thanks again for, uh, for joining us. So you're calling in from Munich. That's true. That's true. This is home now. Nice. How did that get to be home? I mean, you said you went traveling. Was that right after college or
1: something? Yeah, I'll give you maybe a quick, a quick fast forward because probably many of the listeners have been through a similar type of situation where they've been on a journey and it sort of they turned left instead of right and it created a whole new path because there is no fixed path in life. But maybe a quick background: I, you know, grew up in Iowa. Um, father was a high school principal. Mother was a teacher. Was involved in sports and things like that. And uh, also went to the University of Iowa. Graduate degrees in psychology and criminology thought I wanted to become a lawyer and sort of redo the criminal justice system in America. I had this high moral cause and, but I thought it would not be a bad idea to have one year of business experience, just something because in psychology and criminology, you really don't get exposed to that business world really at all. And I went to California and by chance, I ended up in that area, which they now call Silicon Valley mm-hmm. and worked with two companies an office automation company. And then later I got into photovoltaics and they were both high growth companies. Um, I was a You could say high performer. I created a lot of results. So I was able to accelerate through the organizations fairly quickly. Not that my leadership skills were all that good. And that's probably why I'm in the role that I'm in now, helping others and helping myself improve leadership. Um, The photovoltaic company was a little bit before its time and it went out of business, sold my house, girlfriend and I had broken up. I was in my early thirties and I thought, you know, I've never been to Europe, always wanted to go uh, and took off for that nine day adventure, and Paris and Geneva. Suddenly, the nine days were over. Extended that a little bit, and uh, was twenty-one days. And to make a long story short, Harlan, you know, thirty-two years later, I'm still in Europe, so I never used that return ticket. And it was kind of interesting because uh, it looks kind of exciting now, but at the time, it was quite scary. You know, you're, you're thirty-two and you've had a pretty good career for ten years, but not knowing the language, not having work papers, uh, not 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 knowing anyone. Those kind of constraints also help you be innovative and creative. And so that was kind of the base. And then from there, I met some people. I was hanging out at the U.S. consulate. In those days, you could, um, right pre-internet, and, and, and looking for U.S. companies doing business in Germany and German companies doing the business in the U.S., thinking that I could maybe land a job in marketing and sales, which was my background. And, um, and some folks from the Siemens uh, organization called me. It's a large multinational company. Uh, electromechanical, they're they're into everything, and asked me to be a guest speaker at some of their uh, leadership uh, programs. And those days, you didn't see very many Americans that were just wandering around Europe without a job and that had business experience. And so I did that, then joined their executive development team, really liked that, and then went on to found my own company, Envision Learning, and I ran that for 25 years, which was a leadership boutique focusing on talent development for uh, multi-global organizations
0: very cool so your degrees in psychology and criminology have they helped in the work that you're doing
1: now uh, yes to a, to a degree i think so i think the two the two milestones of those degrees what i started studying psychology when i was 18 or 19 and by the time i was 20 i had already dove deeply into abnormal psychology criminal psychology um, dysfunctional psychology, and I was convinced that I had every one of the ailments that was being described in the book, you know, as you do when you're 18, 19, 20, sort of finding yourself. And then I finally just had to let go of that. I just, I just had to let go of it because I thought I was just going to have to sign myself up for a mental institution and realize that we're all in our own way um, imperfectly perfect. And uh, it's just about working on our game and looking to be a little bit better and helping those around us. And so that was what I got from the psychology and the criminology, if I take a little tangent here, was interesting because I got to work with a couple forward-thinking professors, and we were involved in a program called Scared Straight, where we took young prisoners or young 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 criminals into prisons to meet rapists, murderers, bank robbers, and things like that. And the idea was to scare them straight. These conversations, and very profound for me, you know, that was the maximum security prison, Animosa in the southern part of Iowa, you know, like a large discussion room with four guards in each corner with with machine guns, you know, or with uh, rifles to sort of make sure nobody got out of hand. Language was really heavy. And what we saw in that program was that those kids that went through that program, if they were then placed in foster homes or another environment outside of their environment, they did all right. But if they went back into the hood where they came from, they were right back into their own environment. So it taught me the importance and power and influence of the system. And that's why in my work, we'll get to that later, it's not about working with individual leaders, but it's more about working with leadership teams because you can't, you can't just, if you just coach one leader and put it back into the team, the team hasn't had any sort of intervention or change and very likely that a lot of things won't change. So those are the two things I took from my degrees.
0: No, that's awesome.
1: Yeah.
0: And the, the organizational psychology. You know, is is a big piece, so that would probably blend in a little bit as you're working with teams. You know, what's yeah. going on with the the group thinking. So you work with like 100 different, 150 or so, right? Different big leadership teams, big companies over there. uh What are those leadership teams missing, or what are they? What are they struggling with when you work with them?
1: That's a that's a really good question. That's 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 a really good question. Let's, I mean, let's face it. This th- these guys, men and women, and senior leadership teams, and I work with. I work with basic startup, mid-sized, and large multi-global organizations. But I generally focus on that very senior leadership team, the CEO and her team or his team, or one of the strategic senior functional teams. And probably, as you know from your work, uh, you get into those teams and you see highly talented people, very intellectual. I mean, they know their business really well, highly ambitious but as an organizational unit, they don't really work well together. There are sometimes power games, political games. They don't share where they're struggling. And so I would say, in my view, the number one thing that prevents leadership teams from really playing at their best is is uh is, is this. Lack of vulnerability, the lack of, you know, trying to be perfect, trying to be the best, trying to have all the answers. And that may sound like a relatively soft psychological answer. There are a lot of other things involved there. But but when you can, if you're not sharing what you're struggling with, um, or where you have a conflict, either interpersonal or with a business challenge, it's pretty hard for the people around you who are in the immediate team to help you. And that's where things all start to decay.
0: Yeah. Yeah. A lot of times the leader thinks they have to be. The the smartest person in the room, they have to have all the answers to to express that vulnerability that, hey, I don't know what to do here or Mm -hmm. I'm at a loss or I've tried everything I know. That's difficult for some people to to come up with.
1: right? Yeah. Yeah. And I've I've seen it also be a tipping point. I've seen it be a tipping point in different leadership programs where you, you know, you go off site for two or three days with people and and uh, and you're struggling through a strategic piece or a business integration or whatever it might be on the organizational level. And then you're sitting in those so-called fireside chats in the evening. And I can remember a couple very, very specifically where the senior leader just stood up and said, hey, I just want to apologize to you guys. I I know we're in a rough patch right now. And I don't really feel that I'm, I don't really feel that I have the answers uh, that we need to move forward. And I feel bad about that. And I really just want to put that out there. I know that we can come through this. I know that we can, I don't know what it looks like yet, but I know if we stick together, we can do it. And I think there's two parts there. One is being able to express vulnerability and or be able to say, hey, we're struggling. We're not doing as well as maybe we should be or we think we should without blaming others. Sure. And that that is maybe I said, a, a touch of a certain type of courage to be able to own that. And that's why I use this term ownership, ownership and owner shift, because it's about, you know, personal courage that change, development, improvement, transformation begins with an ownership with me. Yeah. yeah, and letting go. I mean, being
0: vulnerable and saying, "Hey, I'm I'm kind of at my level of understanding of this. Right? I don't know where to go from here." But being able to let go of some things. Um, some of the clients that I work with who are relatively new to being in charge. Yeah, they know how to do everything. They're good at what they do. It's hard to let go and let somebody else do it. You know, you always yeah. want to micromanage. That's one of the worst things you can do.
1: Yeah, if you don't want my, I mean, how and how I'm just curious because you're a very experienced coach as well. How do you help people let go? I, you got to do it in baby steps.
0: Yeah, you know, small things. The thing is, you, you, everything is fear-based, right? Yeah. You're afraid that either they're not going to do it as well as you do, or yeah. they're going to do it a lot better than you do, and <laughs> you're going to yeah. look bad, right? Yeah. But you have to be able to. Set the goal, say these are the parameters, go do this. Coach them when they come back. Hey, how did that work for you? What was it? How was was the process easy? Could we make better, you know, use of the the time or something like that? Mm -hmm. Improve that process, let them go back out and do it again until you're confident in their ability, they're confident in their ability, and they can let it go.
1: Yeah. But
0: it's those those baby steps.
1: I like that. Those those baby steps. And also then you start rewiring that mindset and the habit and you've rewired it sort of step by step and they sort of get a new neural pathway there. That's really cool. cool. I like that. Thank you for that. Well, that's what
0: um, I was just reading a, an article about um, was it Pfizer that uh, accomplished in six months, what would normally take them six years. Well, now their DNA DNA has changed. Yeah. Now they know that they can do things like that. Yeah. It's going to change the way that they do business. Yeah. And I think for a lot of businesses, the same thing. Once you Come through a, a difficult situation, and you realize, "Hey, we made it." It changes the DNA a little bit,
1: and everybody's well, like, look "Wow, at, we could do." You know, whatever. and on that on that subject, and I think we talked about this at one other time. But just let's let's imagine. Let's imagine it's summer two thousand nineteen, and and forty or forty percent of the employees said, "You know, we'd really like to work at home a few days a week. We think we'd be more productive. We can manage both our personal life and our business in a better way." If you you, and I've worked with I got clients in North America and in Europe and also in Asia in the summer of 2019, if you'd said to the majority of mid to large organizations, even small organizations, you know, guys, just work at home and let's see what happens. People would have just jumped off the boat. Yes. And yet uh, through a great uh, tragic situation and epidemic, I mean, it caused us to do that. And it created a whole a whole shift in in the way that we can work. So the the question is, you know, how can we create our own shift without requiring a a epidemic to, to, to drive that? So that's, that's an interesting idea. I knew I'd get a couple of good ideas working with you. (laughs) No worries. All right. Tell me, we talk about owner shift and I love that, that in the title. So your book,
0: executive owner shift, creating highly effective leadership teams owner shift. Is that mindset shift or is that a shift in the way that they, um, they use and, and, and build their executive teams?
1: Well, well, well both. I mean, it's, it's, it's head and heart. the, The point is, is that if we look at how leaders are developed today, uh, you know, ninety-five percent of leadership development programs, and I, I don't mean to slag off an individual programs, are based on the leader as an individual per contributor. You know, the first time leader, uh, managing other managers, uh, managing a, a business group, managing international projects, and we need that. I mean, there, there's there's a there's a strong need for to strengthen individual leadership capability and competences. There's no question. However. If I draw a circle around the top 500 global companies, only one in 20 have a systematic approach to continuous improvement for their senior leadership teams. It's it's non-existent. So there's sort of a, you know, usually human resources or learning development is responsible for the rollout and and sort of the stewards of leadership development. And their sort of, uh, let's say, sphere of influence sort of stops at a certain level, maybe strategic leadership level. And and I think this is gonna be the next big thing in leadership development and business growth because so my approach is really a top-down approach to leadership development. It's a team approach. Leadership for me is a team endeavor. And it it starts, this ownership is about if we wanna change something in our organization, in our culture, the way we address clients, the way we drive strategy, the way we create results or create value in our society, it starts in the leadership team. And it's not just the talk, it's the walk. And that's where my focus is. So I believe I believe we start at the top of the organization, not the bottom. Not saying it's unimportant, but I like to focus. If we get a 2% increase at the senior leadership level, it creates a huge benefit and case getting effect for the rest of the organization. Exactly. And that's a big
0: philosophy of uh, Marshall Goldsmith, right? You, you're certified uh, stakeholder center. Coaching. Yeah, he's a
1: lovely, lovely guy, uh, a mentor. And he was, you know, kind enough to write the forward of my book, which I'm really grateful for. And he's, made several comments about the importance of leadership teams. And and through Marshall, I also was exposed to his stakeholder-centered coaching approach, which is, um, you know, when I'm coaching an individual leader is even with teams going out and talking to their stakeholders and how do the stakeholders, the employees, the partners, the clients, the peers, how do they experience that particular leader? What is he or she doing really well? Were are there areas of development? What's the one thing they could do differently that would make a big impact? And then to feed that back to the leader, it's a tremendous catalyst for growth. And I'm grateful to Marshall for that and too many things to mention.
0: Absolutely. No, it's phenomenal because, like I said, when you go in and work with somebody, regardless what level they are, you're helping their upline, downline, their peers. Everybody is improved. So the entire business is, is lifted.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a cascading effect. Very cool. Good stuff. Um, so you talk about your approach
0: uh, to leadership. Um, you've got four principles, right? Leadership is a team endeavor. That's correct. No one person. is. you got to work as a team, right? Um, leadership and development is a top-down process, not bottom-up, which we just said. Leadership teams can transform the business and should not be robbed of the opportunity. Tell me about that. What do you mean? Well, not robbed of the opportunity. That-
1: I don't want to take a shot at the big classic consulting companies because they do some good work. They do some really good work and some very needed work. But we've all seen situations where an outside group of people has come in to, to, let's say, do the transformation, to guide the transformation, almost a turnkey transformation. And then they give the key back to the employees and to the leaders and the people that run the everyday business. And things don't go quite so well. Now, there's a place for the large classic consultants. They have a lot of market intelligence. They can use a lot of their best practices. So there's a lot there. My approach to development and consulting and advising is that I believe that leaders are capable of creating their own breakthroughs. And, and unless there's a need for some outside intelligence, you know, that's just not capable to grab this from the group, which I still think it is, that I think leaders, when held accountable, given the space, time, and the proper frameworks, can create their own breakthroughs. And that's much more empowering and exciting you know if a leadership team got themselves into trouble they can certainly get themselves out of trouble maybe they just need a little bit of guidance and the analogy i use is i played some football football through high school and college and spent a lot of time in the cage you know that's the weight rooms where you got the big guys throwing the stuff around throwing automobiles around and i i was a defensive back in college so i wasn't throwing that kind of weight around but you know, when you're on the bench press or something and you'd have somebody who's just there to make sure you're okay when you're lifting the weights. And sometimes you'd be, be dealing with a weight that you'd never dealt with before. And that person who was watching you called a spotter might just put a finger on the bar, just a finger. And that was enough for you to reach a new level of achievement. And I think that's how I see my role as a consultant coach I'm not there to tell people how they should operate with each other. I'm obviously working with 150 leadership teams. I think I've got some insights so that I can help them do some shortcuts. But if I add up all the experience in a leadership team, it, it, it certainly exceeds my 30 years. So, so I think it's it's a it's a it's a collaborative work, and and I, I think that's one of the main things that uh, I'm known for. Yeah,
0: I love that analogy too. Yeah, and as a coach, we're told that the people have all the tools they need, they have, you know, they know right from wrong. They know what they should be doing. Yeah. It's helping them get around whatever obstacles keeping them back. Right? Yeah. Yeah. With the leadership teams we're working with, what's what's holding them back? Is it just the not working well together or?
1: Well, a, a, a variety of things. I, I would say one of the things that I notice is that, um, you know this this volatile uh, marketplace and rapid change and globalization and all the changes that are going on the very diverse workforces that we're seeing now, where it's no longer you know you stay at one place for thirty years you're moving around it makes it it makes it increasingly challenging for a senior leadership team to say what success looks like in three years. So and so this idea of let's call it a vision, let's call it a future picture of success. And if you can't get reasonably clear with your future picture of success, things start to decay. What happens then in the business functions, everybody starts doing their own things. You have a lot of projects that get started. You don't have enough resources. You don't get completion. You don't get results. You lose energy. So that's the cycle. So I'd say the first thing has to do with, um, you know, not staying in the really tough conversations to chart out what does our future success looks like, where do we want to play, where don't we want to play, if everything's a priority nothing's a priority and I think that's you know one of the one of the biggest challenges.
0: Yeah that is so true. So I know here in the states we're dealing with the great resignation right I don't like that term I mean I think it was a reevaluation. is this where I want to be is this what I want to be doing Um, was that the same over in europe did, did they have the big resignation to a lot of people leaving jobs
1: or um i think that what is a good question very good question i would say not to the same degree you know the states is a um, is a it's it's much more dynamic i mean it's a, it's a that that whole laboratory of us economy is much more dynamic uh, than Europe. Now, that's not good or bad or better or worse. It's just different. It means that even for the economy, when the economy is really cooking in the US, it's really, really high, you know? And then when we fall, we fall really low, you know, 2008, for example. And we're seeing where we're going to land now. We tend to respond, re- rebound rather quickly. But Europe, due to a, a sort of a, some different factors, we don't get those same highs and lows so People are less apt to sort of uh, leave. There's a good package. They have different relationships. I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but it's but it's but it's different. And I think the part of it is that we're seeing also the change in the the role of the of the major corporation. You know, uh, of the of the corporate life and this employment for a period of time. We're seeing more startups, people doing their own things, the sort of uh, the me gig things like that. So it's becoming a much more fluid society. But it reminds all of us in leadership that that if we want to attract and keep really talented people, that we, it's, it's really important that we know what our purpose is and we help people understand how the purpose of what we're doing as an enterprise connects the people who are attracted to us. And it, and because the stuff about profit and things like that, that will attract the top 2 or 3% who are sharing in those profit shares. But the people who are in technical repairs or customer service or product development, they want to know if they're doing something that's meaningful. We all want to do something meaningful. If exactly. we don't get it at work, we're going to get it in the ski club or uh, working at the YMCA or something like that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I know the the labor laws, especially in Germany, are a lot different than what we're used to here and some of the things they have set up. Um, is that part of it? The I mean, say employee engagement. Do the employees there in Europe, are they more
1: engaged in the companies that they work with because of those things or? Well, that, that's an interesting question. And I, 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 this this engagement thing is a is a, is interesting. I mean, I just read the most recent results from Gallup who have said came out last week that said uh, Europe is the lowest engaged um, is the lowest engaged culture. Or uh, I can't really say Europe is a culture because it's right. like 42 different countries, but saying it's the lowest levels of engagement that they've ever measured or something, you know. Um, I think that there's a sort of a, sort of a cultural bias in that, but I'll probably have some calls from Gallup right after this uh, podcast. So I think people tend to look at things a little bit differently. They tend to work a little bit more in moderation and, and, uh, there's a balance between private and, and public and, and personal private and business life. So, um, I really can't, I really can't say that I see low levels of engagement in Europe, although that's what Gallup and they're sort of the world's leading authority on that. So interesting. Yeah, those numbers. I've
0: read the the Gallup numbers um, for the last couple of years, and they're saying in, in the U.S., thirty three percent of employees are actually engaged, which means sixty seven you know plus percent are not engaged, and a portion of those are actively disengaged, yeah. actively doing something that, that hurts the company. Those staggering numbers. You know?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that, and that's what part of my work is about with leadership teams. Is this this the whole concept around ownership is about helping leaders sort of redefine what they really own and what they want to change. And in doing so, looking at how do we create environments where, how do we create cultures of ownership, you know, throughout the organization? And, and I think ownership is a, is a, is, is vastly beyond it's, I mean, it is the highest level of engagement, right? I mean, if we you have you have you have people who are responsible, you have people who are accountable, and then you have people who really take ownership for it. And I think that's a people don't people have to volunteer for that. They have to step forward, and that's usually based on conditions that leadership teams create for people to flourish.
0: Absolutely. So what does it take to be a good leader? What traits or characteristics do you look for in a good leader?
1: Hmm. I think it's three things actually. It's it's the ability to it's the ability to look forward to create a new and better future. So there's I've never worked with a leader, either a team leader all the way up to a CEO who came into a position and he was told to keep everything exactly as they were. So I think the first thing about a good leader is the ability to Identify where the opportunities to make meaningful change—not changes for the sake of changing—but to recognize that there's an imperfection here, there's stagnation here, there's status quo here, there's a market opportunity here. Why aren't we going after that? So, to, and he, he, he or she might do that, or they might encourage that from others. I think that's number one. Number two is to be able to articulate. Uh, a clear vision, a compelling vision, something that excites people. And again, that doesn't all have to come from the leader. That can be helping the whole team recognize that, hey, if we're going to go to the future, if we're going to move to this new specific future, we need a strong vision because we need something that pulls us out of the gravitational pull out of the status quo, right? That's why the vision is so important. So I think it's being able to communicate that that vision. And the third thing is to be able to to, um, enlist others to go with you. You know, so where and how do we, is the imperfection that we need to go forward? What does that look like? And how do we enlist others to do that? I think those are the three yeah. three main things. Yeah, it's hard to be a leader if there's nobody following you, right? Yeah.
0: And yeah, I think it does start with that, that vision. Um, so if I was a bump into people that you've worked with over the past however many years and ask them
1: what type of leader you are, what would they tell me? What kind of leader are you? Well, that's a fair question. And uh, there's I think you're going to get two different kinds of answers. I think that you're going to get uh, when you're asking clients that I work with that I've led, you know, significant change and transformation programs. I think they'll say I. I put the finger where the pain is and um that I lead by example and hold accountable, and I and I do what I say. I think that's what I'll get there. I think if you ask the members that worked with me for 25 years, and many of them did work with me close to 20 years, I think they'd say I was uh, a real hard-driving uh, person, and perhaps sometimes overly realistic about what could be done uh, within a certain period of time. I sort of short short on patience and hard on drive. So, oh, that's
0: good. Drive is important.
1: Um, so let's talk about courage. Okay. you you said
0: earlier, you just decided after working in Silicon Valley, never been to Europe, I'm going to go to Europe.
1: You went alone or did you go with the group? I went I went alone. I thought that was going to be going to be a better experience for me. Yeah. Where did you that? That would be scary
0: for some people. Right. Just to take off to go to a country. You don't speak a language. I'm just going to go and kind of travel around. And then you ended up staying there, kind of making uh, making your way. Where did you find that courage? Where did that come from?
1: Well, for for me, I had a, I had a, I had the good fortune. I had the good fortune of um, of having an experience early in life that um, that I deeply regretted. You know, it had to do with my collegiate football career, and thought that's what I wanted to do. And for some people, that wouldn't be such a big deal. But uh, long story short, I. I decided to 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 quit that football team when I was in the university. I wasn't playing like I thought I should coming out of high school and having certain accolades and you get to college and everybody's got accolades and they're bigger and faster and whatever. And I just got tired of being on the second second seat and finally turned it in after a couple of years. And a week later, the guy um, who was playing ahead of me got injured and it would have been my position, but it wasn't my position because I wasn't on the team anymore. And that, uh, Coach Harlan, that haunted me for about 10 years. I mean, I'd wake up in the middle of the night thinking, God, I've saved the game, you know, you've, you've really done something for the team. But it's like, no, you're it's this 10 years later, you're not even on the team, because you quit the team. And it was really, a really deep regret.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, um, and when I came to Europe, uh, I was just traveling, I mean, it's just gonna take nine days, and I took 21 days. And, and the last night I was in Europe, <clears throat> excuse me, I had this dream that I was 80 years old. And I woke up from the dream, I was in Paris at the time, and I woke up in a sweat, and I saw myself 80, you know, back in California, pushing the lawnmower, two kids, two cars, and which I thought, you know, really good life, really good life. But I, I asked myself, I thought, you know, when you're 80 years old and you look back being in your early 30s, will you ever regret that you didn't explore what Europe might have been maybe for six weeks, maybe even take a German class or something, you know? And that, and I remembered, and I thought, gosh, that's got it. I don't want to regret that. I don't want to, I don't want to have any regrets when I'm 80, you know, and I had one regret already with that football thing. So I'm really tuned into regret and, uh, and the taste of regret. So if I'm in a situation where I think I might regret something, uh, the next morning I just got up and instead of going to the airport, I went to the train station in central Paris and bought a one-way train ticket to Munich and just came and checked in and then started flinging it. So it sounds like an exciting story. Let me say it was five really hard years of, 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 of struggle and adventure. And uh, but I just didn't want to have a regret. And once I got here, I thought I didn't plan on staying as long as I did, but you know, one thing leads to another. And then you meet the girl of your life and she becomes your wife and, and then you start a family and she likes living here. She's German. So Happy wife, happy life, right yeah, so I'm, I'm 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 happy and I get to the states regularly so so nice. that so that I would just say that two things I mean, first of all, I don't think we ever any of us want to get get to the end of life and we say, oh gosh, i I made this mistake, but sometimes we look back and say, well, what would that have been if I'd done my master's degree or i'd I pursued that, you know, I wanted to be a little league coach and I didn't take the time to do it because I was working, whatever it is. But I think we should tune into those things that that we think will be important as we look back at our life some years down the road.
0: Yeah, I remember years ago out in California, um, listened to ABC talk radio out in California and David Viscott, Dr. David Viscott, psychologist online, was talking and he had a guy that called in and, you know, just not happy with his life. Told Dr. Viscott, I've always wanted to be a marine biologist. And he says, well, why don't you go be a marine biologist? I said, Man, it'd take a good five years or so. I'm already 50. it It'll take a good five, six years to get that degree and everything like that. And Dr. Viscott said, How old will you be if you don't go back to school? Hmm. It's like, oh <laughs> yeah. You you don't want to miss those opportunities. If it's something you want to do, get out there, and do it. Right. Yeah. Try yeah. it. What's what's the worst that could happen? You you go back home. Okay. You know, yeah. that's fine with me. You'd get a new job. Okay, I can yeah. do that.
1: Yeah, and that's a, that's that's a, that's a tremendous story. I'm not going to forget that one. That's great. And I think the other side of it is, you know, when we talk about courage, you know, courage is a word that we used to use a lot in 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 town hall meetings and stories about people. And courage, 400 years ago, was usually related to some type of physical risk. You know, if you were the leader of a Band of whatever soldiers or whatever it was or a town, you were out in front and you weren't often facing a friendly group of people coming at you. You know, and the first people that went down were the leaders. They showed the courage for the others. So to put yourself at risk for the benefit of others is really what courage is about, in my eyes. And today we don't use courage very often. Uh, but you re- we talked about fear a little bit earlier, and the things that sort of prevent us from being courageous are these um pseudo fears? I mean, nobody's gonna get you know their hand cut off or asking for a raise or developing a marketing plan that they think is right that maybe their boss isn't going to approve. but we we've got so sensitive, I think in part through social media, all the likes and things like that uh, uh, saying what people think and I think I think courageous is, is really about stepping out there so. Uh, I thought, to because you give me a couple of insights, you know, what's the worst? I thought, what's the worst that can happen to me? I, I, I run out of money. I stall. Um, you know, I got to, I got to, you know, work on a ship to pay my way to get back. You know, I mean, that's, that's, that's the downside. Yeah.
0: But that's, that's what I talk different. to my clients about. What's the worst that could happen?
1: Yeah. And can you live with it?
0: Yeah. And if so, try it. What's it going to hurt? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's been, it made
1: all the difference for me. I think sometimes in life, we think that it's a linear path and that everything yeah. continues to go up straight, but life is dynamic left and right. And I didn't really, let's say, find my place till I was in my thirties, probably. And it took coming to another country. And the reason I'm in the work that I am now is because I couldn't get a job, you know, as an American, I couldn't work in Europe. So, but I learned I could set myself up as a coach, trainer, advisors, independent. Then later I started my own corporation with 15 people, but that constraint led me into a place of abundance you know and uh, and and where I'm good so very thankful for that that's awesome um and we talk
0: about different types of courage right there's intellectual courage the courage to set aside your long held beliefs the knowledge that you have to make room for brand new knowledge empathetic courage right being able to set aside your emotions to make room for somebody else spiritual courage moral courage physical courage is there a type of courage you think is
1: important for leaders well, those are all really, really spot on, and and uh, I'm gonna do some more deep diving on some of the categories that you talked about. I would, I'll put it. I'm from Iowa, so I've kind of put things in kind of simple terms. I think the two distinctions for courage for me is what I call walk courage and talk courage, and 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 sometimes we get into the uh, modus of talking courage. You know, you're a sales director. Get out there and make the sales, and get out there and do. You know, you're talking courage to the others. You know. Uh, But walking courage is different. Walking courage is setting the example. In German, you say the Vorbild, setting the example for others. And I think that's a distinction that that's really important for me in in my life and in my work is watching how leaders talk courage and then challenging them to ask them how they're walking courage. So um, that's sort of my distinction that I'm primarily focused on. Love that. Yeah.
0: Walking and talking courage.
1: Very cool. Well,
0: Dan, this has been awesome. I really appreciate your time uh, calling in from Munich. I I'm glad you could be with us. If people want to learn more about
1: you and what you do in your company and everything like that, how can they do that? What's your website? Well, my website is simply dannorenberg.com. Just Google me. You'll find my website. You'll find uh, blogs and some videos and articles and more work about my approach to developing leadership teams. I'm also reasonably active on LinkedIn. I like to share and learn from others on LinkedIn. I think it's quite a program, uh, quite a nice platform there for that. I also, during COVID, I thought, what can I give back to the community um, that I've learned over the years? So I started doing these Nornberg 90-second videos nice. about little, small, small uh, short little, uh, spots that I have learned from other leaders that, that they've learned from me, vice versa. And I posted those on a uh, linked on a, a YouTube platform. So if you go to YouTube, you'll see all these and you can sign up and get them automatically when they come out. And those are the three primary avenues, or you can go out and pick, pick out a copy of my book.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I love the 90 second videos. Those are great. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Very good. All right. Um,
1: and your book is available on your website. On the, Well, the website, well, you can go to Barnes and any of, the, any of the major bookstores. I would say I think it's a very good read, whether you're a senior leader or supporting senior leadership teams or simply looking for personal development. I think you'll find it very, very interesting. And my advice would be support your local bookstore, because if they don't have it, they can order it. And um, yeah. Excellent. Very cool. I will make
0: sure I have all those links in the show notes so people know how to get in touch with you and, and connect with you and follow you. And again, Dan, thanks so much for being on the program.
1: Hey, a a, a pleasure, Coach. And you know, when you get even close to Munich, the first cup of coffee or whatever else we're drinking is on me. Coffee sounds awesome. I would love, my wife and I are digital nomads right now. I know. We travel
0: around the US. Um, Hopefully, next year we'll get over to Europe. Yeah. That'd be very cool. Love to see you in Munich. Awesome. All right. Um, Listeners, hope you guys are taking a lot of good notes, a lot of good information here. Definitely check out dannorenberg.com and check out his book. executive owner shift, right? Creating highly effective leadership teams. I will have those links in the show notes and share this episode with your family, friends, and colleagues and stick around because there's always more coming. That's it for me. Go Tarlin saying so long for now.